You're listening to the Speaking Tongues podcast. I'm your host, El Sharice. Each week, I sit down to a conversation with multilinguals where we discuss and celebrate language, life, and culture through our own perspectives. Episode 117, Speaking Punjabi and Urdu. Hello, language lovers. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Speaking Tongues, the podcast in conversation with multilinguals. This week, I'm so happy to share this conversation with Kava, the founder of Somos, about his heritage languages of Punjabi and Urdu. Now, Somos is a startup which provides affordable language education and supports language teachers by allowing them to earn a living from their wages. In this episode, Kava tells us about his heritage and lineage from India through Kenya and into the UK. He talks about growing up hearing these two languages peppered with Swahili words. We talk about the relationships between Punjabi and Urdu spoken at home and how identity and language are affected in a country like England. He tells us about coming from a big family, his special connection with his grandmother, and he shares some of the lessons that he learned from her and tells us about their connection through food. We talk about the inspiration in building Somos and how reflecting on racial strife in London and his own heritage and community has impacted the work that he does now. Thank you, Kava, for this terrific conversation and for sharing your story and culture with all of us. If you enjoy episodes of Speaking Tongues, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the Speaking Tongues podcast on Apple Podcasts, and like and subscribe on YouTube so that other language lovers like ourselves can find the show. Special shout out to Speaking Tongues recent supporters and patrons, Heidi L., Linnea H., Pat N., and Yari A. If you've been a longtime listener of the show or even a recent listener, you can now pledge ongoing support for the show on buymeacoffee.com or on patreon.com. And as you know, I wrote a book. My Food Zine of International Language and Cuisine Taste Buds Volume 1 is available now for purchase. Check social media for the sneak peek inside the book and make sure you purchase one for yourself and one for your friends. Links to all platforms are in the show notes. Okay, let's chat. Welcome back to another episode of Speaking Tongues. I am here today with Kava. How are you today, Kava? Uh, I'm good. Thank you so much for inviting me. How are you? I'm fantastic. I'm so excited to talk to you. And we have a lot to talk about. <laughs> uh, definitely. definitely. Yeah. Um, I like to start each episode with the same question. And that is, uh, what is your first language and which languages have you learned to speak? Um, great question with a very complicated uh, answer in my case. So. Sure. Um, I spent most of my early years in West London in a, in a very multicultural place called Southall. And so my parents had split up when I was quite young. And so my mum moved in with my grandma or my nanny um, and also my uncle, uh, my mamu, his wife, uh, my papa Swina, uh, and their children. And that combination uh, meant really a lot of first languages. So... My maternal side of my family uh, came from Indian side of Punjab, but before coming to the UK, had done two, three generations in Kenya. So they brought with them Punjabi with uh, some Swahili vocabulary. And also as they got to the UK and, and got to know, I guess, the Pakistani and Punjabi diaspora there, Urdu side coming in. And also a lot of my uncle's aunts and my mum married Urdu speakers so my dad's family was Urdu speaker uh, my couple Smina that I was now living with also was an Urdu speaker so in the house we had all of these and of course you know English as well um, I think also really for my say my uncle and my mum and her siblings most of them were born in Nairobi but had moved over to UK at an early stage so I guess their Punjabi and their Urdu was a little bit different to their parents and also had a lot more English and London references to it. So I had all those things uh, to begin with, really, for my formative years. 
And then I moved to a really, really white English suburb uh, called Staines, which you may have heard of because of Ali G. Ali G. Uh, uh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so we moved in with my stepdad then, Pete, and English really took over at home and in school as well. Um, so I would say in terms of the language I can express myself most in, in terms of vocabulary and grammar, it's probably English. But I think of Punjabi, Urdu, and those influences as probably my first and kind of heritage languages. And since then, uh, I've learned quite a lot at school. I did Spanish, French, and German. And Spanish is really the one I've carried on. Uh, I move around a lot every few months. So I tend to try and learn the language of the country I visit. So that's meant very, very basic Montenegrin at one point. Um, <laughs> I'll be learning Malay soon. And I've, you know, tried uh, other things so I can at least get by and be polite wherever I am. Yeah, that's the way to be. That's how you be a global citizen, right? Like you. Yeah, and it's cool. And um, it's a great way to learn a bit about culture and concepts as well, because, you know, outside just European languages is obviously just a different way of, of constructing things and thinking about things and all these languages tell their own story as well. And I think it's just a great play, way of understanding somewhere. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny because when I asked you that question, my, my first question, I ask everybody and I, I realized that some people have more quote complicated answers than others. And I always love that because it makes me realize how, this question that looks really simple is really not simple for a lot of people. And that's what I want to emphasize with this show is that, you know, we are talking about language, but for many of us, language and culture are inextricable. And even if you don't, you know, use the languages, you know, your first quote languages, you know, every day, they're a part of you. And absolutely. Yeah. And, and I, I want to emphasize that and I want people to, just kind of realize that like nobody is less than or not enough of because they're not holding on to their you know their heritage languages or languages that are a part of them like that's what that's what makes us who we are and I want to celebrate that so um I like your complicated answer I appreciate your complicated answer and the second part of what I wanted to say was it's only recently for me that I'm realizing this Indian diaspora in East Africa and how that had such an impact on generations of people. And I will say, you know, growing up in, in the U.S. and I, I'm in New York City, like, I never learned this. I never learned about that. And, you know, speaking with you and speaking to, you know, several other and actually many of the people that I've spoken with are um, English, British, or they grew up in, in the UK. So they yeah. have this kind of connection to East Africa. And I think it's so fascinating. Like I, this is brand new for me. So it's like a lot that I have to educate myself on. Um, but do you want to talk a little bit about just kind of how that influence of East Africa or, you know, how that, how that was carried on, you know, with your family and what, whatever you feel comfortable about, you know, discussing, but how that element of, um, you know, your, your family being in East Africa at this time, you know, was translated a, a, another time into the UK. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a great, great question. And it's again, very complicated to, to pull apart. So I think, you know, the first thing to talk about there is British empire and moving people around the empire where they felt they needed them. I think we've also got to look at Indian migration to Africa generally as well through a kind of class and hierarchical lens as well. Um, not Indians, not all Indians are sent there for very good reasons, you know, mm. and it was part of playing a role in a kind of hierarchical racial structure. And, you know, there's obviously a lot of anti-blackness built into that. And, you know, sadly, lots of Indian communities or Pakistani communities now have, have bought into that, not just in uh, you know, African jurisdictions, but also in the places that they followed. So I think it's kind of important, firstly, to like, recognise that exists 
all within this sort of white supremacist structure of, of the British Empire. There's then the kind of more positive side of it in that there's a connection between those of us that have been moved around different parts of the British Empire for different reasons and what that means when you will end up in the same place. And I think, you know, South or where I was, you know, lucky to be for those few years and when my my siblings and not my siblings my um my uncles and aunts all grew up and you know my grandparents moved to uh first he was known as little punjab because of all the punjabis <laughs> that went there i love that but also some of them had come by places like singapore depending on where they'd gone say for world war ii others had come from places in africa but also there was you know probably sort of 70s 60s 70s a lot of afro-caribbean there as well uh, and also Irish people coming through who've all experienced the British Empire in very different ways. But then there's a lot in common between those diaspora communities too in terms of fighting that um, and in terms of engaging with how they were treated when they got to the UK. Mm-hmm. So I think that's kind of the, the broader lens. And then the East Africa part is really interesting, I think, from a linguistic perspective as well, because... My mum, for example, um, it was a revelation for her when I started learning Swahili that some of the words she considered Punjabi or Urdu were in fact Swahili. Wow. Because her friends, um, who again were kind of once removed Punjabi, whether they were Sikh or Hindu in Southall, all used similar words because they'd all been through um, East Africa. Mm. Similarly, uh, my well one of my best friends Ritesh got married um last year and he I met him in Spain he's like the other brown guy and um his family are Gujarati and came by Zambia so I was kind of there while his uncles and aunts were all chatting in the kitchen or preparing for his wedding and I don't understand any Gujarati but then suddenly these bits of Swahili used in the same context as my family would and you're then you're half in the conversation. And I thought that was just really fascinating that we then sort of find these communities that are supposedly completely disparate, have all gone through this kind of migrate migratory experience. Mm-hmm. And I find that really fascinating around language, but also around food as well, you know, because it um, you know, I think my grandma, my nanny, and her friends, I remember they used to make cassava, they used to make mogo. And it's quite an East African dish and the way they did it and you know later on in life I've met other Pakistanis and you kind of mentioned that to them and they're like uh oh, <laughs> what are you talking about how interesting um, so, so you know I think you get these kinds of changes as well that that come with it and it's a really important lens I think to kind of connect us through and I think particularly across cross-racial lines as well right. because you know someone let's say come from a Caribbean island at the same sort of time, 60s and 70s to the UK, is going to be having a similar set of experiences to someone coming from East Africa and there is something to connect over there. It's not, of course, identical, but there's enough there, I think, for kind of solidarity conversations. And I think that was a huge part of the protest movement in Southall and places like Brixton, of course, in the sort of 70s as well. Yeah. Tell me about growing up and, you know, having all of these languages surrounding you. And maybe, you know, again, uh, just to be clear, you don't have to get super duper personal if any of this is, you know, triggering or if it's, you know, if you don't want to share, you certainly don't sure. have to. But um, I, I would love to know, growing up around all the languages that you've grown up around and what was the what was the attitude or maybe the prevailing attitude maybe not just in your family but in your community of encouraging kids your age to immerse them or immersing kids in the language or encouraging them to learn these languages as well like was it welcomed was there an attitude of maybe you know, maybe not with your family, but was there any attitude of like, you know, we're in England now and we have to learn English or we have to speak English? Like, how did people feel about holding on to their languages um, and passing them on to the next generation? So I think the first thing to say is, if I go back to the first question, um, I'm answering that now as it's complicated because as an adult, I've spent time 
digging into what's the relationship between the languages that I had at home. Why? Why did that change? What does that mean for me and my identity? And the reality is, when I was younger, that was much simpler. It was Urdu at home, and there was English afterwards. Okay. And one represented one type of culture and one type of religion and one type of set of freedoms or right uh, restrictions and one lifestyle represented the other. And I think as a young person, I kind of felt trapped to that. Um, so I think definitely in my family, of course, there was, you know, I think certainly my wider family, there's definitely an urge that we speak our languages. But also, like with a lot of migrant communities, there's also a expectation that you go get as educated as possible. Okay. And and often what that means when you arrive is the host country's education, whatever they consider. So that is also doing well in those schools right. and in those subjects and learning those languages. So I, I think that sort of one side of it that I definitely felt from my mum when we moved to uh, Staines with my with my stepdad was okay you've now got these opportunities I never had mm. go excel and obviously like that's coming from a place of love but also it's like a real depressor as well um, and then also you you add in things of just being a teenager and wanting to fit in in, in my environment which is a you know very white one um, I went to I guess what you call a public school in the in the states to begin with and I was the first brown person in there and. I don't think I'd noticed I was brown before that. Like, mm. you know, if I'm being honest, like you know, I'd seen white people on TV, and <laughs> it seemed kind of cool and fun. And then, you know, someone said something to me pretty offensive in like my first week, and you know, it was this real reminder of difference. And I think, whether consciously or subconsciously, I wanted to fit in. Um, after that, I, I went to a, a private school. And again, to go with this like education piece, I, w- I was put in speech therapy. Mm. Now I didn't have a stutter, I didn't stammer, I didn't, I didn't have the speech issue. I just sounded like someone from Southall. Now there's obviously like a class point on that, but there's a racial point on that. But I think collectively the mood was that's good because you're now moving in the direction of speaking the proper type of English, whatever that may mean to, yeah. to people. Yeah. And so I think these hierarchies are there when we're talking about like being educated and that's what's often meant is trying to climb to this essentially quite white middle upper class status that everyone's trying to achieve. So I think there was an undertone of that, but at the same time, you shouldn't leave your culture behind. And I think where I'm definitely more forgiving of, you know, the generation (laughs) above me is that they obviously were going to their own identity stuff like I've no idea what it's like to go through busing or perhaps you know my mum used to say her brothers were let out of school 15 minutes early to avoid violence like you know so they could get on the bus but you know like these are in a very different thing and you're in an environment where who had the time or the luxury to process that so when it gets to their children you know I think speaking to my mum she uh she was divorced she married a white guy, she moved to the suburbs. You know, she's got to deal with all of that. And I think for me in, in, the, in the house, that was channeled through, well, at, at least, you know, pay attention to the religion and what you're meant to do there. Yeah. And I guess my rebellion at the time was, well, I'm going to reject that and everything to do with that in favour of this new world. And, you know, if I had my world again, I would definitely wouldn't do that because mm. I think obviously there's there's much more to culture than that. But I think my mum probably wasn't in a place to kind of tackle it differently either because it's so much the process for yourself. Yeah. Um, so I think there's kind of a, a lot there. And then when you start going to schools like that as well, again, there's this notion of language as utility. So what languages do they offer? The most common European one. Right. Your parents support you learning that because it's useful. So not that anyone did suggest it, but if someone had said, oh, why don't you just do a Punjabi qualification? They would have been like, what's the point? Mm. Rather than, you know, well, actually that means something in terms of your heritage. And yeah. I think 
that's something where I feel like those kinds of discussions with younger generations are a bit healthier in terms of what languages can offer and what connection it can do, but also how we innovate them. Because mm. also when I think back of my mum's, you know, my mum's one of 10 siblings, wow. 10 children. And she's really close to two of her sisters, my colour, Mina and Gina. And when I think of childhood memories of them spending time together and really laughing, it's in this like garbled Urdu, Punjabi, English. And that's also like innovation in diaspora. And so what if it's not proper in any of those languages? Yeah. Like who cares? Like it's where they've got to and that's how they're sharing, you know, family or community. And I think mm-hmm. that's like incredible. And actually when you're part of a diaspora like that, you you get to really lean into that kind of connection. And, you know, I'm so lucky I get to reflect on it. Now I'm a bit older and a bit more grown up and think of like the richness of that. Like, you know, yeah. um so that gets more I guess deep as you as you get older. And yeah. I feel very lucky for that. I have a really soft spot for cross-cultural uh, you know, families or like multi-generational that like are mixing language and mixing things here and there. Because I feel like I love my family, but we didn't have that. (laughs) And as soon as you're saying, you know, you're bringing up that memory, like even for me, observing your memory, I'm like, oh, that's such a warm memory. (laughs) That's like so beautiful. And wow. And And I think, you know, what you're saying about you know, making that move to Staines and how, you know, your your world changed and what you were exposed to changed. And at that age, it's normal. I think a lot of kids, you know, like you said, like all kids want to fit in and yeah. you know, fit into whatever that means. And there's a lot of things that I'm sure we'd all look back and do a little bit differently or we'd approach differently. And um, what do you think that looks like for you? Like, what would you do differently if if you had a chance to? I mean, regarding the languages. Uh, so, you, yeah, good question. And um, I explored this, you know, my, my parents and I, you know, me and my mum and stepdad, we had good chats over the last couple of years around race and language and how we sort of think about that richly. And I, I think as I've got older, this so much I love in terms of learning around food history and just music culture so I think I would have liked to have more of that in in the home um, and there's also this sort of irony when you look back of when you're in that kind of environment and you're the migrant mm. or the second generation or third generation migrant whatever you're trying to fit in with the white kids as much as possible mm. but in a private school like that they're doing their best to glean as much black culture as they possibly can so that they look cooler. <laughs> that's that's the reality of what's happening, right? Like and you just think how farcical it is, you know, when you step back um of, of not have you know of not like having that. Mm-hmm. I think the other time I, I was, you know, really, really lucky to have that relationship with my nanny where she basically raised me at the beginning. So, you know, I'd speak to her a lot and, you know, we'd connect. I think my sadness around it all is that, you know, she she died many years ago now, is that I would have loved to have these conversations with her Mm. in more in-depth kind of way because um, she told me lots of stories and and I learned loads hearing from her. But, you know, my side of it was always quite, like, functional and... uh, more uh, enough to ask questions and enough to understand but mm-hmm. I think you know I've got now you know an adult's understanding of, of, of these things and I've put more time into it so I would have loved to have asked her more about her experiences migrating and living in three continents yeah you know at a time when not everyone did that so you know I, I think that you know that that's something I would have loved to have done yeah um I miss my grandparents a lot and I think that, like, I mean, I'm not trying to insert myself in your story. It's not about me. <laughs> it's okay. 
but I'm, I'm asking this because like, for me, like I will talk about my grandmothers forever. And I want to ask yeah. if there's anything you want to say about Nani, about your grandmother, um, anything that she taught you, anything that you want uh, to share with my listeners and just, just give her some love. And I'm very, very blessed. I've had a lot of people who've taken interest in my life, my development, care, community, and, um, but when, you know, when I think of the first super important person, uh, you know, it's definitely my, my nanny. And, you know, she had 10 children widowed at a very early age in the, the UK. And I think I've got something like 45, 50 cousins, you know. Wow. And so many of us have done a stint living there at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, I think it's kind of a weird thing to say, but, you know, it's, CEO lessons you know I've I've run businesses and she taught me a lot about how to manage lots of people with different and conflicting needs Mm. and she applied that I think very skillfully and diplomatically to a family with all sorts of things going on different ethnicities money issues all those sorts of things and just you know with that amount of people just being available and she did that incredibly well um and the other thing i'm just super grateful for is that a lot of you know culturally and certainly for my mum at the time i think there's a lot of emphasis on patriarchal things so when she got divorced there was a lot of like well boy should be with his father and he should be mm. you know exposed to that um my biological father is quite a difficult guy and i my mum was always insistent I had a relationship with him and to the point I was getting like, I didn't really want one. And my nanny was obviously, you know, we talk about getting rid of toxic people and all that now. She was just like, you just cut that kind of thing out, you mm. know, and it was so simple. And she kind of cut through everything, all these confusing things. Um, and I suppose, you know, that comes with experience. But I think sometimes I see all these like modern approaches to things like self-care and things like that. And I think actually my nanny laid a, laid a really good framework for me in terms of who I keep in my life, why, um, and how I give them time and, and connect with them. And um, I think the other thing that's, you know, I think special for me is that I could always show up. I showed up to a house once with some friends from college, you know, and food was just ready to go. And <laughs> it was just always like that. Um, you know, so when I cook now, I, I, you know, very much whatever I'm making, you know, like I, I, I think about my grandmother's kitchen mm. and, you know, I, that's a real gift to be able to cook for people and kind of build that. And I think that very much comes from her. And my mum has that too as well. So that's yeah. translated through, which has been really great. I love that. We dedicate this episode to your grandmother. We oh, love thank her. you. We love her. <laughs> um, that being said, um, and you did have this, you know, the language um, and, you know, speaking with her and primarily and she raised you, I guess, uh, talk to me about that. I'm asking this question because I know that with people who speak multiple languages or are learning multiple languages, have grown up around them, et cetera, there are feelings that become attached to certain, you know, languages or certain ones that we speak. So uh, for you, having this connection to uh, to these languages that were so close to your family, um, what is that connection like? And especially if if you've had to, um, you know, speak to people outside of your family, outside of your community um, in these languages, like what is the feeling that you have uh, surrounding them, basically? So there's two things. Okay. There's one, I guess, is like inner dialogue and what I hear. And that is warmth or like, like you know, sometimes um, so we just got a rescue kitten. <laughs> My mum and stepdad just got. Aww. And he, um, he, he fell over the other day. And my mum went, hi. And I know she always does that. And that's sort of that syllable it's just empathy or concern or something like that and I hear that in other people or other people's you know there's lots of other little words and expressions like that and I hear that in other people and that connects me immediately to 
those communities. I think the other thing is beyond not just my languages, but I think other people in the diaspora. And sometimes, so like two of my really close friends are Nigerian, uh, Temi and Franco, and they've been brought up in or spent a lot of time in the UK. And although I don't speak any Yoruba, and they don't speak any, there's sometimes we talk about cultural stuff and there's just that, uh, you know what I mean. And I think it's really interesting sometimes when you kind of are in spaces with those kinds of people that have done similar things, that there's just this connection that goes beyond something. Mm. And I don't really know how to articulate it, but there's a feeling there that you're connected around something. I think that's really great. I think the other side of it is self-consciousness because when I moved away, I was very conscious about sounding white when I spoke Punjabi or Urdu amongst uncles, aunts, cousins, and particularly it felt ultra-loaded because, you know, my mum had done this thing and married a white guy and, mm. like, so there's all this thing floating around. So I listened a lot, but I never really had the confidence to be. And when I did, it was, other than my nanny, who I kind of did, and that was often one-on-one, with my wider group, my cousins, I always went for English. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, that was to do with self-consciousness, really. And it's been really interesting having those conversations with other people who've had similar scenarios to me who know what I'm talking about there because they're like, well, yeah, actually, because there's always that, you know, one uncle or one auntie that's like, mm. <laughs> <laughs> sound like a guy called Dave when you speak to Joe. Oh, yeah. no, no, <laughs> Dave. <laughs> um, Now with Urdu and Punjabi, uh, where are you? Are you actively, um, you know, are you, going back to the languages are you trying to learn them or or what do you feel how do you feel about it um so lots of different things there's sometimes I yearn to hear it Mm. so actually the last few years I've watched more things in like Urdu certainly on Netflix just because it's there and I can and (laughs) it's really nice Um, and because I've been moving country to country the last sort of few months it's been just lovely to hear because sometimes you just hear it and it brings and I've really reveled in that. Um, I also, a few years ago, did start learning some of these languages online. Um, so I did some Punjabi, I did some Urdu. Um, and my cousin and I made a trip to Kenya to explore where our family was from. So yes. I uh, learned some Swahili before going. Okay. And... Again, it was just nice to kind of connect these things. Um, I think the other thing that's come with it, and again, looking back to my kind of grandparents' generation, is realising how translingual they were. Mm. Because now, you know, if I watch something in Hindi, well, I understand most of it. You know, and I wouldn't have realised that probably when I was younger, that Mm. they're quite similar to Urdu. I went to Mumbai with, you know, my friend Ritesh that I mentioned, and because his family's from Gujarat, he didn't really understand anything. So here's me, like, technically Pakistani, and he's technically Indian, but we're in India, and I'm more comfortable with this language here than he is. And I thought that was, you know, really interesting. It tells you quite a lot about how much regional variation I I think there is in these sort of massive places. Mm -hmm. Um, So I've started learning a bit, but I want to do more. No one really in my immediate family wrote or read Urdu Punjabi so it was all kind of conversational um I'd like to get to that at least a conversational standard especially because I was in Florida recently where three of my siblings live and spent a bit of time with my nephew and niece so uh, Caleb and Charlotte so they're eight and nine and um in Urdu and Punjabi you have different words depending on whether it's your uncle or aunt from your mother's side or your father's side whether it's your uh, let's say your dad's older brother or his younger brother mm-hmm. so I was teaching some of that uh, which they were kind of semi-intrigued but a bit confused by <laughs> you know I think it kind of hit home that you know like it's an amazing thing to share and my language needs to be better so I can share it yeah so you know I, I think 
as much as it, I see it as something for me, I think it's also about having something to share as well. Mm-hmm. What are those words that make the difference from the on-site uncle side? Um... So my mum's brother is my mamu. Um, and then, so my younger brother, Zane, so there's a middle brother, Baba. Um, so he's the one with the children. So Zane is Caleb and Charlotte's chacha. And I'm their thaya, which is wow. the, your your dad's older one. Yeah. Oh. And then my mum's sisters are my colours. And then on my dad's side, they'd be a pupil. This is so cool. <laughs> and you also get a nanny and a daddy as well, which is on your dad's side. Oh, your grandma. so cool. I had no idea. Okay. So you get you get a roadmap. Yeah. And then also with Len, with a lot of ethnic, ethnic um, families, anyone old who you don't know is just, you know, using English word uncle or auntie. Mm. <laughs> <You know. laughs> so tell me about how, you know, and, and obviously as you've, you know, your words, you said this is, you know, complicated your relationship to the language and the culture and the uh, your heritage, which it's not complicated. It's, it's, you know, it's you, it's who you are. And mm. we sell and we celebrate that. But tell me how that and reflecting on um, your, your upbringing, your, your family, your lineage, tell, tell us how that translates into the work that you do and how you've been able to um, make that part of you, um, you know, ex- not accessible to other people, but how you've made it into what you do for work. Um. So I guess probably the best way of answering is explaining what I used to do for work, which kind of brought brought me here. So um, going back to that education point, you know, I went down a very standard middle class white route, basically, of, you know, I did school, did college, I became a lawyer, had heaps of debt. And I started this big law firm, you know, just after the financial crash. And we had riots in London in, in 2011. So um, a black man called Mark Duggan was shot in North London by police and in an area where there has been, you know, a real history of oppressive police behaviour in, in towards the black community in, in that. So it, at a time of enforced austerity around the UK, as there were in, in lots of countries, we also had the shooting and there were a lot of protests that, that kicked off in the area. Those protests then kind of expanded and there was some rioting and, and looting over a few days. And I was in this sort of surreal 23rd floor of this like glass office law firm looking at bits of London on fire. And I heard these people talk about these communities that were just like, mind mm. and it was a real switch for me of rather than thinking you know as we're often encouraged to do I think as like minorities of look how I've made it I'm now in the thingy you just pull yourself up the bootstrap you can too like you know that's yeah. what everyone's looking for right I was like, well no hang on a minute <laughs> like no um and so that took me down a route where I kind of needed that commercial work because I needed to pay back loans and stuff. Um, of but I, I, I set up a not-for-profit called Apples and Pears, which really, in its most simplistic, organised trips for families at the weekends to explore London. But we'd use that to tackle whatever issue or topic that the community wanted to engage with. So... For example, if you had a lot of refugees moving to a particular area, we'd pair them up with a local family and over a year they'd get to know London, learn how the public transport works, share culture, those kinds of things. We had a domestic violence program as well. We had one for neurodiverse children as well where you could explore kind of more spatial and fun activities at, at the weekend. So the idea was kind of tailoring but the other side of it was really around volunteering because one thing that became apparent to me with these communities was that we talk a lot about integration when we talk about migrants. Mm-hmm. 
we don't talk about it so much when we're talking about middle-class college grads moving and gentrifying an area in places like London and New York, staying there for two years, flipping a flat apartment, and then moving away. Right. So part of the volunteering was I wanted to connect people that are working in these sorts of office blocks to their local community as well and engage with them and then, you know, use your local butcher and, you know, in, in, engage in that kind of community aspect of it and not just be someone who comes here to work for a little bit and then leaves. Mm-hmm. It opened up a lot for me in terms of, re- you know, this was all in East and South London, um, but in communities that are very similar to Southall. And as it was a really nice way of me seeing communities that were similar to mine. Now, a lot of those were Bangladeshi, some were Afro-Caribbean, some were Polish, but they're facing all sorts of similar issues that, you know, the generations before me in Southall had experienced. Mm-hmm. And also it was kind of interesting in that Southall now has a gentrification issue. And here I am, someone from there being a gentrification issue in, you know, Southall. So how do you kind of connect to that? And it, really started this process of looking back into my heritage but I think also how certain issues whether it's gentrification whether it's austerity are compounded based on things like you know race and gender along with you know being working class communities as well in those areas and I learned a lot from the families we work with mm-hmm. um, and one thing that really set the tone was this notion of sort of zero hours contracts. Okay. So um, people basically permanent freelancers or I guess what you, what you call 1099 yeah. workers in, in, in the States. <laughs> yeah. So no, no benefits of any kind. You don't get paid unless you're there. And we're all going through a process in urban areas of, of London where families, working class families are being moved out into other areas. But the children were at the same school. So the parent has a choice of being late for work where they don't get paid unless they're there mm. or putting their six-year-old on two or three buses to then get into school. And you see all these things compounding. And even with the apples and pears trips, you know, they were completely paid for by the volunteers, guidance, school staff would come. But for some of the parents, particularly if you're working Uber or something, it still wasn't doable because you lose earnings at, at, at that time and costs were flying up you know, for those communities a lot. So um, I think it recent to my efforts that I want to be doing work that was supporting communities more in that space than my other work. Um, so I kind of had to deal with myself that as soon as I was debt free, I would uh, resign and you know, start up a social enterprise. And so that time came in February, 2020. And um, I resigned at work and took a bit of time out to have a think what was next. And this coincided with beginning to look at my heritage languages again. I was doing some business style studying and really having a think about what I would do. And I really sort of opened up this relationship with language learning platforms. Mm-hmm. So I started using a couple to explore my heritage languages, but also to brush up on my Spanish and <laughs> other places I was moving to. And I just saw this pattern of this, again, Uber star relationship that I was very familiar with back in London of people only really getting paid when they work, but also that pay declining, really high commission. Because if you think about it, if you go on you know, a, a one-on-one teaching platform, and you have a teacher lined up for three weeks, you're pretty mean if you don't give them five stars. So mm. most people have five-star reviews, which means it's so hard for a student to figure out right. but also yeah. for a teacher to differentiate themselves beyond price. So we've just seen drop prices dropping and dropping. So I wanted to build something that allowed human beings to be centered where they could earn and live well. But also then connecting to, I guess, my experience in terms of being somewhere people could practice. Because I was thinking again, like, in reality, I never would have practiced with my cousins because I was too shy. Mm. So what I needed, one-on-one is great to kind of get you to a certain point, but actually you, you want conversation partners. Yeah. And the rarer the language, the harder it is 
to find that and this opened up this world of language rights for me so mm. I went on this sort of exploration of looking at all these just fantastic projects around the world trying to revitalize languages and I think we've got something like 7,000 languages in the world and according to the UN around 40% of those are going to disappear over the next 80, 100 years so a lot of those languages haven't made it onto digital and you know coming back to your point around feelings and expression I was like hang on we aren't just using languages here we're using concepts mm. and ways of looking at the world and what I wanted to do was kind of bring all of that and my offline community organizing into a new project um, which is what I've recently started so uh, it's a social enterprise called Somos, Somos. and the goals are it's I guess a, a triple mission which is especially what you're not told to do for a tech startup, <laughs> but I'm doing it anyway, um, is and to create an environment for teachers to earn and live well, for language education to be accessible to all, and to ensure language rights for everybody. Mm. So those goals are kind of designing the language learning product. And what I've got at the moment is a four-week conversation course um, led by a teacher once a week, so they don't have to do quite as much teaching. But then peer-to-peer learning groups for students to practice. Um, so the idea being that they it's cheaper for them per session um, yeah. so that rarer languages aren't priced out. Because, mm. you know, I've, I lived in Mexico for a little bit and, you know, let's say you're Zapotec and you want to learn um, Zapotec in, in Mexico at $15 an hour for one-on-one I mean, that's just not going to happen, mm. you know. So I was aiming for something that works out around $2 a session across the four-week course. So, you know, I'm hoping that it it allows for more people to kind of engage with the product. Yeah, I think that's wonderful. Please let us know how we can find Somos and how we can engage and how we can support you. Um, so the website is somos.education where you mm-hmm. can find out about the courses, um, see our teachers, find out a bit more about our languages. But I think in terms of support, I think the first thing is uh, please support the teachers. So one slightly funky thing we're doing at Somos, a bit different to other platforms, is most most platforms allow you to promote what you sell on that site as a teacher. So here's my one-on-one teaching profile or here's my business. Um, We've created a system that's a little bit like LinkedIn bio in their their profiles for teachers to share all the many different ways that they engage with their students, whether that's Somos or not. So the first thing I'd say is please support them because I think it's tough to be a content creator, I think, in this kind of space. Yeah. And for most of us that learn languages, we actually need loads of different ways. We need some one-on-one, we need mm-hmm. some podcasts, we need a bit of app work. So I think it's natural that teachers actually teach across several different platforms and maybe they do want to sell an ebook and have a podcast. So regardless of whether they use Thomas or not, I kind of want to promote that. Um, I think the second thing is there are more projects than I can count that are doing amazing language revitalization work. Um, we are kicking off a Projects We Love series where once a month in the blog we will share projects of that nature and divert people to those if you pass it about your language or a language you're learning or your a project you're familiar with please let us know because we'd, we'd love to love to feature that and then of course there's coming to learn a course as well um i do really want it to be a space for mixed and creole languages as well and the real focus at Somos is not less that kind of scholastic stuff stuff but more about going from decent conversation to being confident and um, so if there's a language you'd like to learn let us know and we'll try and find the teachers or if there's a teacher you think is fantastic that is because often so many teachers with those languages are doing it for free mm. um you know let us know and, and hopefully we can kind of get them set up on the platform yeah i will share the uh information that you just shared i'll put it in the show notes for this episode so that people oh can, thank you yeah we want people to click and find you right away Kava, my friend, thank you. Thank you for this conversation. I've really enjoyed talking with you and learning about what you do, learning about your life, hearing your story. Thank you for sharing. 
Um, it's been wonderful. It's been a wonderful conversation. No, thank you. Really enjoyed it. Yeah. I like to ask um, the same question at the end of every episode. And if you can answer it, you are welcome to answer it. And if you, if you have, um, you know, something else you'd like to substitute, please feel free to do so. Uh, the question is, do you have any jokes, popular sayings, tongue twisters, cool slang words, idioms, words of wisdom, or words of advice in Punjabi, Urdu, or Swahili Ooh. to share? But in all honesty, mm-hmm. my spoken version of those languages probably isn't good enough to do that. Okay. But, and this is without making my grandmother or mum sound like enforcers, I think Punjabi and Urdu terms in terms of instruction a lot of the time. So my inner voice, you know, when you've hit the snooze button too many times to like get up, that happens in Punjabi. Or if I'm in a rush, I have this like hybrid English Punjabi instruction going on in my head. And I don't know whether that's just falling back to the time when I was being yelled at as a child oh, no. or whether it's just because that feels natural and that's as far as I can take it mm. um so they're a bit boring in that sense <laughs> it's a bit like you know no no wake up quickly get up you know and like um so yeah I guess I think so it's not really quite good enough to tell a joke unfortunately it's okay <laughs> it's okay how about since you do speak other languages let's open that up to any other languages any favorite words that you have or any favorite phrases that you've learned um in any of the the languages that you've picked up well I obviously like somos because i took that from spanish <laughs> to, to label the business um which i really like my gran used to say um so i don't know if you've heard the phrase like jaldi jaldi but like quickly and then she'd clap her hands and go fata fata and i don't know if that means anything but that was like serious mm. <laughs> move it quickly well Kaba thank you so much and um before I let you go uh in this situation after you've been talking to someone for quite some time in any language doesn't matter which one whichever comes to mind first what is the best way to say goodbye oh so I like saying to the office which is what um girl my family would have Said, which is like they would do with saying goodbye. Um, yeah, because that would my nanny would hang up the phone saying that, and I'd speak to her. And my, you know, my mum still says that. So it's yeah. nice. Can you repeat it one more time? Kudafis. 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 Kava. Thank you again Kudafis. for this conversation, and I'll be talking to you soon. Great. Thank you so much. Bye. Take care, bye.